You're an all-star, get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star, get the show on, get paid. Welcome to another episode of the NRL All-Stars Podcast. This is Barnsley, back for the weekly Talk and Footy episode. Talk and Footy episode number two. Uh, we've had two great rounds of the season started, and now we're up to round three, about to kick off this evening. Fantastic footy so far. And to talk about nothing but rugby league, I have the return of Luke Garrity, who is co-host of the Rugby League Cemetery Podcast. Give it a listen if you love to listen to to old games and some commentary around them and some talk about some games gone by in previous years of rugby league history, uh, but also a very big Knights fan. So interesting week to have him on and also a prominent jersey collector. The best jersey collection you will ever see is in Luke Garrity's two walk-in wardrobes. But Luke, welcome back to the All-Stars. Thanks, mate. Podcast, really good mate. to be here. Obviously, as soon as we got the win on Sunday, I was straight on the phone uh, sending you messages all week. This is the week. Get me back on. Um, before it all falls apart, so I'm, um, <laughs> I'm cock a hoop this week and, and ready to roll. Well, uh, we'll speak about that game very, very shortly. For those listening for maybe the first time, this is the Rugby League episode. We only talk footy in this one, no Supercoach. So the All-Stars podcast has a Supercoach episode. Every Tuesday we record, it hits on a Wednesday, and we have a talking footy episode every Thursday to get up before the round commences. So talking footy all day today on this podcast, round two. Pretty good round of football, Luke. I think before we actually talk about the individual games, I was saying uh, last week on the Talking Footy episode with Wilfred, I was really quite impressed with round one, the quality of football. I thought all the games were pretty good. Last week, yeah, we, we descended a little bit. So <laughs> the, Sunday, the Sunday games weren't quite the quality that you would have hoped. Uh, and as well as that, some of the other games as well probably weren't as good. Uh, so the... Dolphins and Raiders game was a, a little bit of a bludger. I mean, my Roosters made it a bit of a bludger as well. So, yeah, it's good to have footy back. Round two probably wasn't quite. No, that's probably fair. Um, to be honest, that was more what you tend to expect early in the season. Round one's probably the outlier. Um, early in the year, when you're getting combinations and everything, you, you do tend to get games like this. Teams are sort of both desperate to win, so they'll put the the effort in to get a close game. But a lot of the attack isn't all that fluent. A lot we probably saw a lot of that over the weekend where there's some, you know, there's some soft tries by people getting their defence wrong and also a lack of tries sometimes because teams can't get their attack right. Um, we probably saw a bit of that rather than spectacular. With with some um, obvious examples of some good footy uh, thrown in there, a lot of that was probably evident over the weekend, though. Uh, that's all right. Expect that earlier in the year and hopefully it sorts of picks up over the next few weeks. So the first game of the round was the Panthers and Rabbits, and it was a bit of a blockbuster. Obviously, the Rabbits are touted as some uh, NRL heavyweights for this season. Penrith badly needed a win. The Rabbits were favourites in this one. I actually loved the Penrith Panthers on the betting market. So I said in the lead-up, I really thought that they had had the win against the Rabbits and they were going to be pumped for the game. wasn't quite the Nathan Cleary clinic comeback game that I thought might have happened. But the Panthers still won fairly convincingly. Uh, the Rabbits didn't actually score a point on them until the 66 minute. And then really, it was just a consolation try in the 78th minute near the buzzer to give them a 16-10 scoreline. But realistically, I was pretty impe- impressed with Penrith. Uh, it was one try first half. And we seem to have these 
Thursday night great game starting this year, which are real low scoring and a bit grinding, but they've been pretty high quality contests. Uh, I enjoyed it. I don't know whether Penrith are quite back, but they were certainly better. They had 54% possession in that game and they completed at 80%. And I think that's really where they want to start their comeback trail to form with. Uh, Their run meters were also significantly better. The Fords for Penrith were outstanding, I thought. 25% more run meters, uh, four to two line breaks. Really, in every metric, they dominated the Rabbits, who only completed at 69%, which would have been disappointing. But in saying that, you know, the Rabbits were still missing some key middle forwards, which probably really hurt them against that. Yeah, Panthers I think the back. forwards is the main thing. When I saw Souths for favorites, I thought that very much comes from people forgetting how the game works, to be frank. I think anyone who's watched a lot of football knows that if you are sort of much weaker than your opponent in the forwards, it's pretty rare you win. Um, obviously, when you get to grand finals and everything, it's the teams with the best playmakers that often win or the best star players. But week to week, um, if your team can't compete in the forwards, you don't win. And South had a lot of guys out. Um, the amount of minutes being played by guys like Shaq Mitchell and and even Moali and those sorts of guys um, coming through, that, that they were missing both good first graders in sort of Arrow and Totola and also guys like Sele who were sort of journeymen who do a job on the bench. And they, they really, really didn't have, I thought, the middle forwards to really beat Penrith. And that sort of showed that Penrith um, grinded away and won without ever being spectacular because they just had the better the better forward pack and just went with that, sort of just played conservatively and, um, and got away with it. it. It is funny, isn't it, when people talk about how much Penrith needed a win because that is going around and you do get that sense. But it's also it's the second round and they've really only lost the World Club Challenge and round one and everyone's sort of in the media panicking a little. Um, I'm... I thought they weren't great, but they did enough to win as they should. And that's really enough in the early in the season. You don't win the premiership this time of year. And and for me, the real thing for them to work out or that they're going to have to work out is that I think the majority of their game this week and last week and in the World Club Challenge look a lot like the first 20 minutes uh, of the finals games they played last year when Appy Coruscant wasn't on the field and Mitch Kenny was and, and, I raise that because I don't know how much they're out of form so much as playing a guy at hooker that, you know, to call a spade a spade is, is not up to it um, in that position for what they want. Uh, it, it's no, when you look at their run over the last couple of years, it, it coincides with having Api Coruscant getting there. Um, what he did out of dummy half was very big for their forwards and also very big for Nathan Cleary, his rise to being the best player in the game. And rather than a prodigious talent and a guy who we hoped would be good, really does coincide again with them having a great hooker. And and Kenny Kenny is a really good defender and can fill a gap there, but they're going to have to work out whether Sonny Luke's their guy or whether they need to find someone else or what's going to happen there because they just don't look like scoring points when Mitch Kenny plays dummy half. Ivan Cleary is a very good coach and he's much smarter than what either of us are, you know, but I just, I do not understand why Mitch Kenny has persisted with for so long in that Penrith system. I just don't see the appeal at all. And I see the appeal if he's in your New South Wales Cup side and he can come in and play on the bench because uh, as a bench player, he, he at least can play at 13, come on as a middle forward and also back up hooker. But I just, they've persisted with him for a few years now and I just don't see anything in there. And 
I do see a lot in Sonny Luke and people raise the fact that even in this game, you know, he did stifle their attack at times or whatever. I actually defended that though. because I think that he does, but he's also someone without the experience yet, but that's also without the experience playing an NRL level with this NRL spine. I think he'll get better at that very quickly, but I raised the point to defend him that there was a few occasions where people said he stifled the attack, where it was actually Penrith's clunkiness, that made it, that made the attack stifled. There was one time in particular where they were about 20 metres out from the try line and he picked the ball up and sort of ran and, and didn't know where to throw it. And he looked right and Luai wasn't in a position to get it. Um, the, the play had sort of overrun him as well and it would have been a really poor pass and a real rookie pass to throw if he threw it that way. So he rightly held the ball up and it ended up shuffling it left and it went out and they had a play out left. Um, but that wasn't his fault. It was the fact that Penrith was just not not really hitting their attacking plays and sets the way a well-oiled machine of Penrith used to. Um, so I, I don't think it's as much his fault. And either way, he just seems like such a clear upgrade over Kenny. They kind of lucked into Luke getting more minutes on the weekend because Mitch Kenny had the HIA. Uh, but that doesn't look like it was the plan because Kenny still ended up playing 41 minutes despite his 15 minutes off the field. So... I think that they need to get to that really quickly and that's going to be really important for them because I don't see Mitch Kenny uh, working in the way that they No, I agree. I, I was moment. going to say the lock thing's perfect. The, the thing is, uh, he obviously a much less good player, but similar to what Cameron McInnes does, there's a lot of value in having a guy play lock on your bench who could cover hooker. In the HIA era particularly, in injuries, it's really valuable. But as a starting number nine... Um, I'm going to back the guy, but I, I just don't, I don't get it. The, the team is set up um, around having a hooker who will bring the forwards onto the ball and get out of dummy half and run when there's opportunities. That's the way their style has been set to play. And I'm just surprised because they've done so well in other areas. They've gone and they went and got Sean O'Sullivan the other year because they identified that if Cleary was out, they were going to really have struggles. And they went and found a halfback who could fill in and do a job in, in a similar sort of way. They've gone and found, an, you know, Cogger this year in a similar way. They go and find these backups to Cleary, but I don't feel they've ever really gone and looked at Hooker and said, what what's what's the plan here? Because obviously it's not Sonny Luke to play 80 minutes that we wouldn't think, or that's very risky, but but I don't think it's Mitch Kenny. I'm really surprised, actually, they, they weren't scouring around looking for that sort of next budget guy to, to come in and, and be available there, because I think that's at the moment, my thoughts are that if they don't go, if they don't win the comp again, because they will be in the top four or six teams, it will probably be because of the dummy half issue. It's a big one. And Jeremy Marshall King was somebody who nobody wanted and he went for 220K to the Dolphins. Before the Dolphins offered him a starting job, he would have been happy to go anywhere and play bench if he needed to. I don't know why more teams like the Panthers didn't just say for 220K. If it doesn't end up working out as a starter, we'll, we'll just put him in your South Cup. You know, it's, it could have worked out for so many teams and he would have been better, you know, and he could have worked in unison as well with, with Sonny Luke and his development. You know, it just, it is a bit of a miss for me with Penrith. But, you know, let's talk about one of the other guys in this game as well. Latrell Mitchell, I, I pinpointed as a bit of a talking point too because there's so many good things that you can see from Latrell Mitchell and he set the league on fire last year when he came back from his injuries for that final third run that South's had. And we did see some good stuff from him in round one. In this game, I think that a lot of fans kind of asked themselves, especially South Sydney fans, why we waited till the last 15 minutes to see Latrell go into gear here? You know, we were down 16-0 and really needed some Latrell magic and he was kind of nowhere to be seen. And I guess this is the problem with Latrell. And every single superstar has their 
uh, development areas. They have their things that they do very well at an elite level and they have their things that they just maybe never will do very well at an elite level. And Latrell's is his involvement. And he just seemed to not really be in the game until that final third. And at that point, the game was already over. So for me, for Souths to continue on, aside from those middle forwards returning, which is going to happen round three now, they really need Luttrell to, to be in the Yeah, game no, that's true. It, it's, a, it's a hard one. He always starts a bit slow. Um, I, the forwards do impact him because he is a fullback. So he's sort of, the way he plays, uh, he's not a Tedesco style of player where he's truck and trailing the ball everywhere and, and following up those leads. He's sort of a... Um, well, similar to Cody Walker, actually, which is why he can be a bit quiet. They're sort of big attacking players where they sort of don't do all the grunt work and they sit on the end and ice the attacking players um, a lot of the time. Um, and they're really, really good. And if you, you know, you, when you get the momentum and run your play, there's, you know, very few people you'd prefer to Walker or, or a Latrell on the end, sort of with getting that second last pass on it and, and executing the play. And that's sort of their go. And if your pack isn't, um, going to match up you are going to struggle there so that's a way like probably the next step in development is working out how he can influence games a bit more when they're not you know they're not quite getting into the positions they want um because that's always been my little knock on walker who i think is a fantastic player by the way it's it's i think he has this uh probably that problem that when they don't get him where he wants to go where does he then he doesn't sort of go grab the game by the neck he sort of sits out there getting frustrated um you know what I mean? Like he's sort of in his position on his left edge, waiting to run his attacking plays. But if they're not getting the, if they're not getting the momentum to get in those positions, you sort of want your key guys to go and work something else out and get you back in the game. And, and that's probably where both of them could get a bit better. Um, and they probably need to because the way their their cap is structured, uh, they've got enough really superstar players that they're going to be in that top six again. They're going to be in a prelim or the week before the pro. You know, I'd be stunned if they weren't the second week of the finals. So they're going to get to those big end of season games. And what seems to have held them back a few times over the years is that when you get in those tight games with an even opponent, you, your superstar does have to grab the game by the neck when it's not being given to you. And you're right, that's probably where they need to take that next step. And probably all of their spines the same. Is It cooks a runner who likes momentum and those guys really do need to find a way to, you know, play off the back foot or find points off the back foot or in that arm wrestle in those finals if they want to win the comp anyway. Yeah, I agree. Look, let's move along. We're not going to go through the Para Sharks game because Para is going to start at 0-2 and we're going to talk a little bit about them in some of our other chat that's coming up after the round review. But the other big game there was the Roosters getting their win that they really needed, but it was a pretty clunky one against the Warriors, 20-12. to And as a Roosters fan for me, you know, it's just it's just injury after injury. It really hurts because the Roosters do notoriously start a little bit slower in build. And when you have these injuries as a fan, you kind of know that it's going to be a bit of a struggle. You know, once again, I thought we were really going to struggle for the first half of this match, and I kind of hoped that we were going to pull away. It looked like they were going to do that several times. But they just didn't quite get there. The completion rate was actually really good at 83%. So the errors were down a little bit, which was good. But, you know, you had things like the Roosters needing to resort to starting Fletcher Baker, um, needing to start White. And that really, you know, degenerated their forward pack quite a bit with the strength there. Uh, I thought Manu returning was good. Manu returning was good, but it also, you know, you could tell that he needed a run. He wasn't quite ready. Uh, and hopefully he will be this week. But all in all, they, were, they got the win, which was good. Um, but a lot of the plays that they had, they had a lot of plays on the line and all 20 out from the Warriors. And they just didn't seem to be able to quite convert. 
And even though they weren't turning the ball over, they weren't coming over points. Now, the Warriors' defence I was quite impressed with. I thought it was quite good. Warriors' forwards were very good. You saw some old-school Fenua Blake, Manly days, what they brought him there for. Had a rampaging rampaging line break that he got there and really put them back in the game with that. But overall, you know, the big talking point that came out of this wasn't the Roosters' 20-12 to 12 win. It was some of the players. So Ali'i, we're going to talk about Joe Suali'i's play a little bit later with the contract talks as well. But, geez, there was a couple of sitters and a couple of big mistakes that he made. And I think that anybody who wants to annoy him as the next superstar right now needs to kind of call the Jets because you saw all the development areas that he has all in that game for me. Defensively at centre, I said in the preseason, he was going to have a lot of work to do. You saw that again in this game. So Suali in attack with the ball in hand. He is going to make some mistakes. That's going to happen. But that line break was obviously a huge one where he's gone through and he's run away from Tedesco. And, and look, that's a that isn't something that, you know, you should see at an NRL level, to be quite frank. Like, it, it should be something that comes off pretty easily where you draw and pass and he just really balls it up. Sam Walker, you could see afterwards, actually say to him, you're very lucky. And you could read the lips. Uh and he was, because if Walker wasn't there, that would have been a butchered try. You also saw him, I think, not pass the ball a couple of times when he should have, and it culminated into a couple of plays later where he actually pushed a pass to Teddy to try and push it out to him, and it was a late pass that he should have thrown earlier, and because of that, it was a turnover, and it resulted in the Warriors scoring at the other end. So instead of being up 10 and possibly going up 16, they ended up you know, in an arm wrestle with a, a one-try difference again in that game. So I don't want to be too hard on him. He's a young man, but it is one of those things where I think some people need to pump the brakes because there is a lot of things in his game he's still developing and going into centre is a new position for him. And he really didn't show, you know, he really showed a mixed bag. on the Yeah, and I think that's fair. Uh, I've always, uh, one of my real bugbears actually with rugby league idea of linear progress, because what happens is a teenager comes in and what everyone says is, oh, He's so good now. Imagine what he'll be like in X amount of years, as if players do literally just get better every year. And, and, and that's not always true because people often people start young in the NRL because of their physicality, not because of their football smarts. Um, and, you know, at, at, at 18, 19, whatever it was when he was coming through, uh, he was big and physical and he'll get a little bit more big and physical. But, I mean, it's not going to be you don't just exponentially get bigger and stronger. Like you'll get a little bit bigger and stronger and, and, and his pace will stay about the same. But aside from that, what then comes down to what makes you a better player is the stuff between the years and your cleverness and your football smarts on the field, uh, particularly for back. You're, and if you want to be a fullback, your ability to um, pass and, 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 and sort of bring that passing game and that awareness of space and everything actually has nothing to do with your age a lot of the time some of those guys are born with it and some develop it a little bit um but it's been a thing for years and even with forwards you get a forward make the nrl at 17 and everyone say imagine what he'd be like when he's 25 and quite often they don't even play rep football um lance thompson was one like that he played first grade at 16 and it really you get to the nrl early because of your physicality and if you're that physical at that age fair chance you're going to be a good nrl player but whether you're going to be a great one has nothing to do with how good you were when you were 17, to be frank. And and if you go through plenty of the greatest players of all time, plenty of them didn't debut at that age. And that's because it doesn't just work like that. And, and with him at the moment, I think there's guys that have 
much better football smarts than the other young guys and much more awareness of passing and timing and space and those sorts of things. And for example, when Latrell debuted for the Roosters, it was blatantly obvious that he had that those football skills to go with the that physicality. It was blatantly obvious he had those passes and kicking and various things to his bow where you were like, okay, this guy has a very high ceiling. Um, whereas with, with other guys like Suwali or Suwali, we, we haven't necessarily seen that other stuff yet. And that was evident uh, on the weekend. What we saw was a guy who has always run over everyone. Um, and that's what, but let's be honest, that's why the Teddy thing happened. He has, I very much doubt in his whole life he's ever had to pass to someone <laughs> before the NRL level in that situation. He would just run over them. And when you get to the NRL, um, there's no there's no guarantees that you do learn all of those things. So he's a guy that I have no doubt will be or could be if he just wanted to be the best winger in the game. He ultimately could be because it's a very blunt instrument position where you could tell him to make 200 metres every week and to bring the ball back hard and to score off tries. If he wants to be a great centre, he's got some work to do. And if he wants to be a leading fullback or even be considered, not even in the same sentence as Tedesco, but in the same book, like with 50 pages in between them, he's got a hell of a lot of work to do. And I'm not saying he can't do it, but debuting at 18 years old or 17 or whatever it was, does not have anything to do with what his ceiling is. That was because he was big, strong and fast. And it's up to him whether he wants to learn all those other things now. And it's not going to happen just because he debuted young. Uh, It's a real bugbear of mine. It's been for 30 years. It's just all you hear. It's a, it's a really good point. And it's also something I'm worried about with him. And, Look, I'm not going to go as far to say that, oh, look, you, you know, he's a completely selfish player and, and this stuff. But I think that there were trappings of that that you could see in some of his play, whether it's subconscious or conscious. Like, I think there's some of that there. And it's not, you know, some people will jump to his defence and say, oh, that's terrible to throw it on a young kid, call him selfish and say he's a selfish player. No, it's not like that. You need to understand that there is a lot of young kids that are stars and whatever, and they just develop that way of playing because it's effective, like you said, when they're younger. And the good ones know how to buy into the team concepts and to play, make the right plays rather than the plays that they would have made in the younger grades. And he's not doing that yet. And I I hope that he does. But one of the things that I am concerned about is that if he lets his ego get inflated by all the talk about him that's around, even his management and stuff as well, but as well as the wider media and everyone else, then he might be in trouble of becoming one of those players that does play a little bit selfishly, doesn't play the right type of football and doesn't play the way that he should and the way that teams will need him to at an NRL level. And that's what you saw on the weekend from him for me. But I'm not piling on him. He's still got a very long time to go, but I was very disappointed with that performance. And I think he's got a long way to go still before we actually anoint him as a star. It is actually a big thing in the game is that it's not necessarily even the, the selfish point but it's the actual basic skills is that how many the game's got a lot bigger and stronger and the amount of guys that get to first grade without basic football skills that we used to see in everyone is quite astonishing and by basic football skills I don't mean tackling and running hard I mean stuff like drawing and passing and an awareness of you're in a three on three and you know, you draw your man or you try and bring the guy in to create your overlap and then pass or when you're in a three on two as soon as you've got your man interested give the ball and don't cut a guy out, just hit the guy next to you because then he does the same and someone's away where you see a lot of guys cut out straight to the overlap and they slide. All these sorts of basic things like drawing and passing or when you go through the line, positioning your support player, looking where he is um, and, you know, just having that sense to drift across to bring the fullback with you so you can set up your support player in space. You see so many guys 
get it and sort of almost run across so that the fullback ends up being able to cover them and the support player. Do you know what I mean? Like not that basic positioning and things to actually draw him. All these little things were something that were people a long time ago when the game actually was smaller and backs were smaller than forwards and all this kind of thing. To make the NRL or, or the New South Wales RL and the ARL, those guys had to learn all of that um, because you didn't, if you weren't, no one was 110 kilogram centers running 11 seconds on the 100. So you had to sort of beat people by drawing your man and passing and doing all this stuff. And what you get a lot of now is you get a lot of these guys and Bradman Best is another example, like Suwalihi who have made it to this level without ever learning any of that because they have Mack truck run over everyone to get to this level. Um, and it, it he Suwalihi has much more to his game and a lot more skill than some of these guys I'm going to mention, like Best is one, Conrad Hurrell's another one, um, Esan Masters. I think he's got much more to his game than that. And I don't want to compare him to that, but they're, the worst case examples, particularly Masters and Hurrell, of guys who get there with their physicality. And when that isn't quite enough, they don't have anything else to back it up. They don't have that awareness and skill. So those guys drift out of the game where like a Petahiku who's got none of that, but knows how to draw his winger off. The, when he's at centre, he draws his winger in and puts his winger away all the time. And he's been able to stay in the league 10 years because he's got that one or two basic skills that mean when you run a, when you run a sort of, a shift to Hiku's edge. If you've got an overlap, if your good players get an overlap, you know Hiku will draw the winger in a pass. And and those things are really missing from young players. And it's been a concern for 10 years. And it's it's though the ones that really make it are the ones that work out that it can be sort of that can blend their athleticism and actually learn those basic skills. And it's very rare. And the Morris brothers are the last great example of it, who I thought had were blessed with the athleticism and talent of top line players, but also learned that classical stuff of staying running their line on the wing perfectly or, or drawing and passing or, 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 you know, if they're at center drawing guys in and it's something like, I think it's a really big problem in the game, actually, how many guys are getting to the NRL without knowing how to do things that used to be everyone knew how to do. Oh, it's a huge problem. And yeah. it's something that I've like, I actually chatted with a friend of mine the other day who used to play representative for Parramatta and played reserve grade and stuff. And he, he's, we're st- he was still flabbergasted as am I that, players can't play on the other side of the edge that they play. Yeah. On. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. We were, like he was a, he was a center. I was, I was a back row forward and it didn't matter whether we were on the right or the left, you know, and it just, it baffles our minds. And we talk about it pretty regularly, how some players just can't do it. And he was making the point with Suali that he actually on the side that he's on, they've tried to make him go over that side and they've actually asked him to carry the ball in a different arm and he's struggling to be able to do it. And when you watch the game, you'll actually see that. Yeah. And it's just like, wow, like these are the sort of things you learnt when you became, you know, in your early teens, especially if you were someone that was a bit of a prodigy coming through. And these guys are coming through now and it's not disrespect to them. Part of it's the coaching and just the culture in rugby league. It's a real concern. Yeah, it's, it's not coached. It's, it's almost not on them because it's not coached. It's not... You know, he's he, like, so well, he's a great example. He seems very dedicated to improving his game and learning. I'm sure if they bloody well had been working on that the whole time through his, as a young man, he, he would do it. But they, they don't coach that. You see it in the junior footy. It's just, it, it is just guys running plays and big guys running over people. The big, strong guys run over people. It's also a really good argument, again, which will raise its head about reserve grade and the importance of reserve grade, because you will get coaches that will be hard on young players and they'll be hard on them for the fundamentals. And they'll need to do things that work against men and veterans who 
have played a lot of NRL and you just don't get that at the moment. So, yeah. look, we can't go on about it anymore um, because it'll turn into Barnsley's round of the week and <laughs> I've got a different spray to have a bit later in the podcast. But, look, it was a good win for the Roosters, not a great one. I think the Warriors were valiant. It needs to be said that they did lose both Nickel Clockstar and also Ford very early for Ford with injuries. And that's hampered them quite a bit and they were very admirable. And I think they're going to, they've been a lot better than what people thought at the start of this year. Their forwards have been good. I thought Barnett was good once again. But going on to some of these other performances, um, the Broncos 28 to 16 over the Cowboys was a pretty big one. I was curious as to what would happen here because obviously there's a long stream of games between these two local rivals where you've got one point wins and golden point wins constantly and stuff where this one, the Cowboys started off well uh, and Nanai went over for a try and he's been very quiet. So I'm sure that he needed that for his confidence, but then it was all Broncos, really. The whole middle section of that game, the Broncos really put the game to bed and were comfortably up until, you know, the Cow- the Cowboys scored again with seven or eight minutes left and, you know, sort of put some dignity back in the scoreline. But really, the Broncos really nailed them. Uh, and it was really, when you come, to, when you look at it, the Reese Walsh show, that was the big standout for this game for me. Walsh was spectacular. He didn't look like he was doing a lot. And certainly his work rate is also always something that's going to be low for him. Um, very much a Latrell Mitchell type of mould, but obviously a very different type of body and a different type of player. Um, reminds me of Ponga. Ponga is the one he reminds yeah, me of. Yeah, actually, that's a really yeah. good example too. Yeah, a bit of a young Ponga. Three line break assists, one try assist, one try himself. He just went on an attacking blitzkrieg, and it was just nothing the Cowboys could do to stop it, especially in that middle portion of the game where he just went on a, a, an absolute tear. I thought he looked outstanding, uh, and I thought him and the progression of Mam, who I really like as a young half, really takes the pressure off Adam Reynolds because they've gone from a spine who you kind of went, oh, geez, there's too much pressure on Adam Reynolds here. Like, he's a decent player, but he can't do everything. To, wow, if, if this is their fullback now and this is the progression of their six... It doesn't matter so much that their hooker spot's a bit of a hole. They've actually got a good spine to take the pressure off Reynolds. And I think that we saw that perfectly in that Cowboys victory. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the one, the thing I always had about Reynolds going there was not a doubt on what Reynolds is. It's that I didn't know that what he is was going to pull aside from how low they were out of a black hole. Because what he is, is a guy who is fantastic at getting the ball to guys who are better attacking players than him, if that makes sense. Like he's not the guy who throws the spectacular last pass for tries. He's quite often the guy who makes sure that Walker or Latrell or whoever is getting the ball or Inglis uh, is getting the ball in the right position to be the spectacular player. He sets everything up right and gets it there. And my question was how high he would get them up the table when they didn't have those players to throw the ball to. And, and that question, is, as you sort of just said, is one that might be answered. Now that all of a sudden, if Mem's getting the ball and, and, um, and Walsh is getting the ball, that can be fantastic for them. Um, I'm really keen to see how Walsh goes. We've seen flashes of this before from him. So I really want him to be a great player because he's so fun to watch. The way he plays is really exciting. So I'm really hoping he can get there. Um, and time will tell. They've got a really, really good forward pack and a really good halfback. So he is going to get way more opportunities than he got in New Zealand. And I think this is, a, a, you know, he's very young, but but I think if he's going to be an absolute superstar, this is the year we're going to find that out. Yeah, I agree. And uh, also another comparison that came to mind when I was watching the game was Ben Barber in the middle of his career. Not the initial career of Ben Barber where he's much more zippy and, and try scoring Ben Barber, but when he developed that passing game, 
um, and he still had a bit of yeah, zip and stuff. It was a little bit like that. But look, it was also needs to be said that Drinkwater got um, sent to the bin as well for this one. Ten minutes to go, which absolutely kneecapped any Cowboys comeback at the end. On, on him, uh, can I can I jump on Drinkwater? Because I quite wanted to. Um, I, I just I think that because he's a very likable guy who plays a fun style, I think people have got a bit high on Drinky a bit bit quick. Um, I really want him to be a really good player as well, and I really like him. But I, I, I think, I mean, feel free to disagree with me, but if you before last year, I, I think it would be fair to say his career was one of extreme promise that wasn't delivering, um, where everyone could tell he could play. Uh, and it was, you know, blatantly obvious where even at the, in the bad Cowboy sides at 5'8 and stuff that he had a lot of gifts. Like, he just it looked so easy for him to set up tries and stuff. But he wasn't really going anywhere, was he? Like, he was sort of just getting along with you. Sort of like, oh, this guy's really gifted, but it's not happening. And, you know, it's, it's a bit underwhelming. And then last year, he, he wasn't even starting in round one. And he's come out and had a really, really good season. Um, a really good season. But we've come out this year and, and this is, uh, you know, it's not automatic that that's going to flow on for him. He's a guy who probably had 16, 17 outstanding weeks of putting it together in the NRL. And send off you know taking the binning out and everything else he didn't do much in that game and and he fell over the line a couple of times before but we, we need to see if the cowboys are going to get back up where they were last year he needs to deliver every single week over a season and i think everyone's a bit quick to say oh they got drink water at fullback it's a really good he's really good he's a guy who's put three quarters of a good season together and, and he really needs to really step up for them if they're going to make a dent in the competition i'm going to disagree with you a little bit mm. um and here's my reasoning as far as not living up to it, um, I'd argue that he's not had the opportunity to live up to it. Like, had he have started at fullback unquestionably like three years ago for the Cowboys, then I think that we would have seen a lot more from him. I think that it was pretty unfair as well. And this is one of the things where I criticised Todd Payton previously in many other podcasts and chats. They lucked into Drinkwater starting anyway. It was only because Hammer actually got hurt at the start of the season and then Drinkwater got his go. That kind of was a bit lucky because he was a big part of their season last year, as you said, but he could have gotten the opportunity the year before and it looks like he probably would have done similar. So I don't quite 100% agree on the whole promise thing, but I get where you're coming from as far as... Well, he's played 75 NRL games. Yeah, but he was... I mean, he's been stuck behind better players as well at Melbourne, to be fair. Like, you know, as good as what he may be, he was never going to be some of the other guys that they had there. Uh, and they, they've clearly made the right decisions. As good as Drinkwater is, all the Melbourne guys are better. Uh, and I just think the Cowboys didn't make the right decision in starting him earlier. He did play fullback his first season there. He played every game there at fullback and and got dropped because they were terrible and moved to five eight. So he 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 started. He went up there at fullback and and didn't make it stick. I'm going to disagree with you a bit there. I think he was there over. He played ten games, sixteen games, twenty four games in the year before he broke out. And he played the whole 10 at fullback that first season and got shifted because they weren't going well. I, I just think, I think that I would say that the, they were going to release him to the Knights at the start of last year. And nobody was saying that was crazy. Like there was people that were saying that they should have kept Clifford and, and let go of, of Drinkwater. I mean, I obviously wish they did at Newcastle. Um, but like, there, was, there was people <laughs> saying that at the end of the year before, like quite genuinely. And I just reckon, I'm, I'm actually not bagging him, but I'm saying that people mm. are sort of anointing him now as a rep-level top-class full bag. And he's had three-quarters of a good season, and I really hope he replicates it. But he's been thrown out of the blocks, and he, he does, if they're going to go anywhere, they need him. They're not going to get it done off, off Townsend and, and, um, and Dearden. He's got to be good. 
all the time. Oh, I agree yeah. with that. But I was going to raise Townsend and Dearden too, because if we're going to say that, you know, Drinkwater's only played three quarters of a good season, Dearden's only done the same thing. And then on top of that, Townsend has been in the league for a very long time and he has maybe had half a good season at Cronulla, like where you'd say that he's sort of at that level. You know, it's... Yeah, no, that, that's fair. But I, I think with them, I think the thing is, though, that Townsend's job is to get him around the field. Dearden is a good young player and dummies and runs a lot and stuff. I think most people would say Drinkwater, I think with him, he's the guy who's going to come up with a lot of their points, a lot of that sort of magic dust that actually gets you over the line. And I think over the course of his career, he's been guilty of doing that a little bit too infrequently. And then he's had a really magical run last year and he can't get away with that infrequent stuff again. He can't get complacent. If, if they want to, he got a rocket up him. He didn't get the fullback spot. And when he didn't get it and then he did get it, he was fantastic. It sort of put that, desiring him by the look of it to come good and if he he needs to set up tries every single week and play well every single week for them to get up there because if he doesn't they won't finish up the top of the table I'm just interested to see if he can do it I hope he does I really like him um I'm just interested to see if it happens over the course of this year where I think we'll find out proper star fullback yeah that's fair um I'd probably say look they definitely rely on him and they're going to need him to be any good so I certainly agree with that part of it uh, look, the shoulder charge. I mean, when I first saw it live, I thought, oh, no, he's going to go here. And then I saw the other angle of it, and I thought, actually, it's not as bad from that back end angle because he does seem to be just wrong-footed with Oates going the, the different direction, and he does actually push out his arm, which I didn't see from the other angle. So I didn't think it was as bad, and it's one of those ones where I saw it and went, hang on, I need to see where he actually hits him high here because, you know, there's one th- those ones in speed, and even when you slow it down, but you can't actually see the contact. I had trouble seeing whether it was him in his shoulder or the cover defence's arm, I think it was Hiku, that came across. Uh, what did you make of, of that and his, and his sin binning and his subsequent, what, three weeks on the sideline with an early plea? Um, I think the jump really hurt him. I don't think they like that if you get off the ground. It's, I've seen worse. Um, uh, once, uh, the thing with the three weeks, once I know they shouldn't, but once Oates was that badly injured, he wasn't going to get any less than that, um, really, was he? Like whether he should or he shouldn't have. I think the yeah, jumping, it, it does always yeah, come into it. It's it, you're just not going to. It's I don't know. It's it's an interesting one just because I don't want to be accused of being too biased because Safidi's was really bad. But I, I mean, I was interested that that Safidi got two extra weeks on drink water. Um, who didn't Safidi didn't jump off the ground like he sort of they threw a hospital pass to a guy coming back under and he was sort of already him, charging there. He, he got yeah. in very high, though, and um, he, he very did, clearly yeah. high, he whereas did. I didn't. I, I had to look multiple yeah. times and I still uh, could only see no, glancing contact from Drinky. I, I get that. I just, I, I watched the Safedi one and, like, the guy, as the guy, as he hits him, the guy's crouching, like, actually crouching down, um, like the guy with the ball and coming back on an angle and you're sort of like, okay, that was bad, that's fine, I don't have any problem with five weeks, but then... What is drink water? Is it just okay because drink water is smaller and hit a bigger guy as opposed to Safidi speaking to small? I don't know. I, I find that a bit hard because it's like I think if Safidi jumps like that and hits someone like he did, then I, I would have said he would have got a lot more than three weeks. But um, probably fair enough. Four, maybe. I don't know about that. You can't, you know, be jumping off the ground. I think that's the problem in using your shoulder. If you're going to jump, you can't really stuff it up. Yeah, I, look, I saw the suspension coming. I thought yeah. he was slightly unlucky just with how the play unfolded and how it went at speed. And that's what people have to remember. Like, I'm not disputing the suspension or, or the bin, really, considering everything. But 
it's also one of those things that rugby league is played at such a high speed that you can't even tell on on TV. Like if you're there, you see it. But at the speed, when you have to react to someone as a fullback coming in the opposite direction on an angle and they're going in to score a try and you've got to change to try and make contact, it's it's pretty hard. Um, and it's something that isn't really intended a lot of the time if it ends up the way that Drinkies did. So, yeah, I feel for him. Um, but, you know, there was, like you said, not going to be any other outcome for it. We did mention your night, so why don't we talk about that? It was not a pretty game whatsoever. Uh, I Can I just say, I, I cannot believe that the Newcastle Knights got a victory. I don't even want to say it was well-earned because, I look, I don't know if anyone should have earned those two points. I probably should have given it to the fans. But it was... Quite a quite a game with a lot happening. Uh, the Tigers are obviously struggling. Uh, the Knights have been struggling. They lose Ponga very early, which is a, a big deal for them now with Ponga out. But if anything, it was a brave victory because really, you know, for a Newcastle side that's struggling to then be down uh, uh, multiple players, but then also to have Saifidi sent off, it's, you know, it's a, probably a galvanising win for your group. Yeah, I think a lot of people said how bad the game was and I was there. I think it's a little bit unfair because once that's on the Tigers, like in the Knights situation, I don't know why anyone would think that the Knights could possibly have played an entertaining <laughs> brand of football. Um, that part's annoyed me a little bit during the week just because it, it's it was a bad game, but, but Newcastle do deserve quite a bit of credit because, I mean, they went there. I don't even think they were favourites to win at the start of the game. And if you go through what actually happened in that game, I don't think I've ever actually seen a game where more went wrong. So they lost Kalen Ponga for the whole game uh, and, you know, had to play Tyson Gamble, who's never played for the club before at all and, and has been injured and his company was in the team as a bench lock. Uh, he comes on at 5'8", and I mean, he couldn't make the Broncos last year who didn't make the finals. They they then, they lost Braley for about oh, within 15 minutes of the, of the start time, maybe within 10. So for all intents and purposes, they played the whole game without their captain who's on $1.4 million and without Braley, who I think is probably their second best player. Um, they then also, they also lost Frizzell for the second half of the game who are, you know, he's been their top five players and been their top three earners. They, they lost Jack Johns as well, who isn't a good player, but at this point you can't really afford to be losing more players at this point. Um, and they also played 25 minutes with 12 players because Dom Young got Simbind uh, and the worst challenge of all time on challenging the Simbind, by the way. Um, I don't know why I challenged that. And then Safidi gets sent off with 15 to go. So the, the Knights played without their best two players. Uh, another one of their best players, they played with no bench, from, for at least half the game and they played 25 minutes of it a man down. So I thought it was quite impressive that they won. They kicked out on the full three times as well during that but, game. But so impressive doesn't mean it's pretty, yeah. you know, like... That's no, no, but, but why, why yeah, would that be It's pretty, impressive. Yeah. yeah, it's impressive from from the obstacles they had to overcome for sure. And like a lot of teams would have lost that. And a lot of, a lot of the time you would expect that the Knights would lose that. It's just, it probably lost to anyone else in fairness. Well, yeah, there's that. I mean, it probably speaks to how bad the Tigers were. And I just, I don't understand at Leichhardt two weeks in a row, uh, Tim Sheen's renowned revolutionizing the attack and what they were going to do and looking at how they played, like they just, the Tigers just didn't know what to do. And, if you don't know what to do against a 12-man team, it's just at home with the fans cheering you on. I, I just don't know what to make of it, to be honest. And, you know, there was a lot of media coverage talking about its panic stations and, and Sheens is panicking. And 
I don't know too much about the examples that they were giving, like Sheen's coming down to the sideline and look worried. Like, to me, Tim Sheen's is always one of those coaches that always looks worried. He's just always got that look. But If you didn't well, look worried, that, that would be a problem. Well, <laughs> I think they've got big cause to look worried, though, yeah. so I don't know why we're making no. a big deal out of it. Like, you can say it's only two rounds, but when you lose in the fashion that they did and you can't score points against, you know, an absolutely battered Knights team with down on that many players... And you do it two weeks in a row at Leichhardt Oval as well. I mean, it's it's a big concern. Oh, it's a massive concern. It's um, it. I mean, I, I'd be blunt on Sheens. I don't have any inside knowledge on there, but from my perspective, he white entered that job. He came back as the football manager and is used the whole time to white end himself back into the coaching position. There is no way that he wasn't heavily involved. Like, there's no way they just came up to him one day and offered it to him, and he was like, "Oh, I'd never thought of this before. Thank you for offering." He's white ended his way back into a job that he lost, you know, a decade ago because they were terrible and he was coaching terribly and he'd let a lot of their good players go to Cronulla and recruited Adam Blair and all this. He's gone to the Super League for, for years and been absolutely terrible over there. Um, and he's come back and so far what we've seen is, is that he offed their best player from last year and you want to talk like letting people run, you know, an absolute madhouse that place is. He basically has let Hastings go because he wants to sign Bateman, who doesn't like Hastings. So he's now getting rid of halfbacks because edge forwards in another country don't want to play with him. Um, he's refused to let go of Brooks on a million dollars. Like the Knights would have taken Brooks off their hands. Um, and he's insisted and doubled down on him and tried to extend him. And and it really, it's just been a disaster. And it's not, it's it's what they deserve for the way they've gone about this uh, and they have for years. And, and I'm sorry, it's like to their fans out there because they don't deserve to go through this, but that place is a basket case. It's the only thing that makes me feel happy at night for as a night fan, knowing that the Tigers, <laughs> like, at least the Tigers are worse than us because they're just, the way they manage that club is appalling. And I'll put it on you now. If Jackson, if, if they kept Jackson Hastings, they would have won yesterday. If we had Brooks and they had, sorry, yesterday on Sunday, if we had Luke Brooks playing for us, with 12 men, without Ponga and without the rest, and they had Hastings, there is absolutely no way the Newcastle Knights would have won that game with Luke Brooks and them having Hastings. No way at all. Well, it's interesting points on Sheens, and I want to address those because I've said the same thing. And I I was really surprised when he got the coaching job because well, I'm going to I'll give a non-football example here. I worked for a large corporation uh, 15 years ago. And I'll never forget that there was a new senior manager that came in that had a really high executive position and stuff and came in and, you know, was doing the job and whatever. And a couple of, uh, probably a year in, they realised that they actually sucked the guy 10 years before and sucked under very uh, extreme circumstances for his performance and different behaviours. And then just sort of went, oh, well, he's going okay now. Let's see what he what happens. And... It was surprising there, and inadvertently he ended up losing his job and getting fired again. But it's almost the same thing. <laughs> the, an old boss of mine that I talk footy with um, still to this day, we still talk about it, and I was talking to him about the whole Tim Sheens thing. thing. Isn't it the same thing? Like, I, I find it really amazing that there wasn't more media coverage to say, look, Tim Sheens was actually sacked in 2012, and he actually did a lot of really bad things. And his game plan actually wasn't resonating with modern football a decade ago. So how are we just moving in a decade later, putting in this new coach that's actually been there before and not worked under pretty extreme circumstances and just pretending that that whole past career that he had at this joint never really happened? Like, 
I'm all for like giving him another go if like he's shown that he can do it and, and or proving himself elsewhere or whatever. But it just seemed weird that the mainstream media normally jumps on this stuff so much and they didn't there. And there's all these other things that people nitpick about the Tigers organization and, and a lot of the time rightfully so and how they manage things. But this was somewhat accepted. Um, you know, it's oh, it, it just seemed a bit bizarre to me. <laughs> it, it's just narrative. They were going so badly that it became this cry to bring back 2005. And it happens at Newcastle sometimes. Whenever things are going absolutely terribly, someone will toss up that they should either get an English coach on some sort of Mal Reilly vibes or that the Johns brothers should do it. Because it's just a natural thing. Like when you, you hark for something that was good when you're struggling and think that they can fix it. And they just got this weird media narrative about going to 2005. And I think the board thought it would be a good look. Um, but, but the big thing, it's interesting what you say, when you talk about Sheens' attack and how all this chat that spent the off-season passing and everyone's passing the ball and, you know, they're going to bring back this side-to-side attack and Todd Payton-style forward passing, like back when he was the lock for the Tigers and all this. You then go and look at who we recruited, and you're like, he's bought David Clemmer, Isaiah Papalehi, and John Bateman. Like, they're clearly... And then he's got Stefano at the other prop. The team is made to bash the door down, right? And then Alex Twole is his lock. Like, the team is made to run straight and knock the door down and beat the other pack down and play off it. It's not made to play this bizarre style of football they've spent the whole off-season talking about of, of side-to-side shifts. He's bought big, strong, running forwards. Like, run they don't the seem to know what their attacking plays are. And you saw that in the Knights game no. several times over. But look, we need to move on and talk about a couple of these other ones before we move on to our key talking points for this podcast. The first one being the fact that the Dolphins got a really well-earned 20-14 to 14 win over the Canberra Raiders and are suddenly 2-0, and zero, one of the four undefeated teams in the competition. And the big talking point in this one was aside from the fact that they got that win which was really well earned I just have to say like it was almost my spray of the week but I'll I'll leave that for a different topic in in the end of the podcast how the hell does Sean O'Sullivan get sin binned for that contact that he made in that play like they almost took away the game from the Dolphins by that type of call and I'm just I'm flabbergasted as well that that official is still here the week after, and there wasn't more made out of it. Like people have talked about it and the media's talked about it a little bit, but like that's that'll be the worst decision of the year to me. And I don't think it will ever get beaten. And we're we was in round two. Like it was so bad that I would have felt aggrieved as a fan of rugby league if it was a penalty. But he actually got sent to the bin. And it was just so innocuous that I feel like you could send bin fifteen guys every game if you were going to look at that type of contact and say, oh, that's a sin bin. And the the thing is as well that I find really, really poor from the NRL is that a lot of fans don't understand this, but it can only be tipped off from the bunker and reviewed like it was after the play's already done if it's a reportable offence. And they made that a reportable offence so they could review it and sin bin him for that. Like, there is no way in the world he was ever going to get charged by the match review committee. Obviously, he didn't. He was never going to miss any time. But they've gone against their own rules and how they've done it. Like, I thought that that was so shocking that it should have been mentioned far more than what it was out of that game. And I commend the Dolphins for coming out of it and commiserations to poor O'Sullivan, who was obviously very upset at the time having to go off when the game was at tipping point as well. Yeah, yeah, I got nothing to add to that. It was an appalling decision. I, I have no idea how they came up with that, and that that can't be the standard across the year. Fair income, we'll have people in the bin every game that's played. Period. 
<sighs> Absolutely abysmal. Hang your heads in shame, NRL, if you're not going to address that because you know the fans deserve something more than what that was. And we haven't had too many clangers to start the year. I will say, though, come it's going under the radar a bit too much at some of these decisions from the bunker at the moment because even the captain's challenges at the moment are very much a lucky dip. They're just not getting the mainstream media attention that they have in prior years when we've really been on the NRL to perform better at a refereeing and adjudication level. Other game, Melbourne Storm 12, Bulldogs 26. First half of this one, Melbourne looked as lost as I've ever seen a Melbourne Storm team look, Luke. They looked like they were just stunned. They looked like they didn't have any answers. There was five unanswered tries up until the 50th minute where two minutes later, the Melbourne Storm got their first try on the board and kind of saved face a little bit on the scoreline, playing a lot better after the Bellamy spray where I hear they've had to remodel the whole dressing room and build it from scratch again because he's just torn it down at halftime. But, you know, I'm not sure what to make of this because this is a Bulldogs I expected to see. I thought they performed very well. They didn't even rely that much on Matt Burton, which was a pleasant surprise. A lot of the attack came from elsewhere. Uh, Reid Marnie was fantastic again for the second week in a row and created points opportunities for them. And Kikau was, you know, better than he was in round one, which he needed to be. But round one, they're obviously hugely disappointing. And they come out, go to Amy Park and absolutely destroy the storm in the first 50 minutes of this football game and put the game out of reach. Is it the Bulldogs playing to their potential or was this really a really poor Melbourne storm outfit for the first 40 minutes? It's down on troops that needed to kick up the ass from Craig Bellamy. Well, it's very exciting, that's for sure, because Melbourne never get flogged, and I just, I just love it. <laughs> so how good is it? <laughs> um, that aside, um, it's really hard to say because the Bulldogs, I thought they were abysmal the first week. Like I think it would be fair to say they weren't, oh, you know, they got blown out late or something. I thought they were pretty bad. Um, so firstly, big credit to the coach because it'd be pretty easy. You, you know, you've got all these wraps and not all of them are necessarily deserved because every you know there's always got to be a chosen assistant coach who's going to be the next great coach and you know the Fitzgibbon call looked good the Adam O'Brien one looks terrible you know it goes both ways um and and it would be very easy to get your first kind of game I know we had a couple of games at Penrith filling in for hook but it'd be very easy to take over for this game and have it all go wrong against Manly and really panic um but he has obviously got them back together and got them to turn around the result very very quickly and it would be very easy to have lost to Manly and think, crap, we're going to lose to Melbourne. We're going to be zero and two and I'm under pressure. So I think whatever he had to say or do during the week, he deserves a lot of credit because it looked like a totally different team. Um, and that's probably the question for the moment is, I think it's fair to say they were good rather than Melbourne terrible because Melbourne just don't usually, oh, they don't usually get beat like that. So we, we probably, and, and they played okay against Parramatta. So we've probably got to assume it was the Bulldogs playing well. And the question now will be whether they can do that consistently because we've now seen a very good game, you know, from them and one, I think, very poor game. So where what are we going to see week to week? And that's probably what I'm interested in seeing over the next month. They've got a, a quite an easy run the next two weeks. And if they're fair income, they should win both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and we probably need to see, I think, Burton and, and Kikau start to play a bit better together to take them up a level. And if we can see that, I mean, I didn't have them in my eight. And obviously, having seen this game, I'm starting to think that I need to watch them closely over the next month and see if I got that one wrong. I'm not changing my mind yet, but I'm, you know, I was really impressed. If they play like that, I don't know, three out of every four weeks, they're going to win a lot of games. Yeah, and Mel- conversely as well, Melbourne aren't just going to walk into victories at Amy Park anymore. They really 
it's a bit of an excuse to say Munster's not there. They were missing some other players. They did lose Naz for probably six weeks. But this week they've got Kamakamitha back. They've got Olin back. They've got Tarek Sims back. They should be able to play better than what they did last week, and I'm expecting a bounce back from them. But it's not going to be an easy competition run for the Melbourne Storm either, and I think that they realise that now they played the Bulldogs. The Dragons and the Titans. The Dragons did the Titans 32-18, to 18, and really the scoreline flatters the Titans. The Dragons did that game very easily. The Titans got a consolation try right at the death. It was uh, an easy, should have been a 20-plus point victory to the Dragons. And I don't think anyone expected this. Like, obviously, it was a jubilee, and I don't think a lot of people rate the Titans. So, you know, it's not crazy, the result. But the Dragons look significantly better than they did in, say, the preseason games and namely performance against South Sydney. You know, those performances are normally pretty good indications because the full teams are normally played. The Dragons just look woeful there, whereas their attack was much better here. They had nine line breaks. Um, ben Hunt looked like he did last year when he was leading the Dally M's for several weeks. And guys like Tyrell Sloan were really creating attacking opportunities, which you need him to be able to do. And on top of that as well, you know, even just some of the other guys like Ravalawa were actually running a bit rampant as well. So, again, kind of similar to the last game with the Dogs and the Storm, Luke, was this, you know, the Dragons are a lot better than what we think or the Titans are just really that bad? Well, it's hard to say because the Titans played the Tigers round one. So, um, it makes the that result makes the Tigers' uh, loss last week look even worse if we think that the Titans are below the Dragons by that degree. Um, so, the Tigers, I think, are the real loser in the power rankings out of some of these. Uh, look, it's a hard one. I the Titans just I listened to this on the radio, so I, I didn't get. To, I was driving home from Leichhardt to Newcastle, so I heard it, and they ran out to a lead early. The Titans, and it just sounded like they were doing it easy, and it just turned off. Um, and to me, that's the bad old Titans. We've seen that a lot before. Um, that's probably, in fact, if I was to say, if there's one hallmark of, of Holbrook's reign, it's playing well and then completely falling apart. It's not, um, you know. As a Knights fan, there's games where the Knights are terrible the whole game and are just awful and don't show up, and that's sort of something that frustrates me. But the Titans sort of DNA thing is that they actually get out to leads or play really well for 20 minutes or 25 minutes, and you think, wow, like this is a really good team. And then it's like I've rarely seen a side that can turn off so thoroughly to the point where you're like, this isn't the same team that was playing. 15 minutes ago. I don't know if it's they, when something goes wrong, they just drop the bundle or fall apart, but it's a really big problem. And, and it's the first sign, I guess, very early in the year that it hasn't been addressed. Um, the halfback was hooked off the field. Not a good sign in the second week of the season when your halfback's been got the hook. So, you know. They remind me of a park footy side. That's what the Titans reminded yeah. me of five years ago, and they still remind me of one now. They play like that. They play unprofessionally, I think is the best way to yeah. put it. They... Can put, they're happy to put on some points and stuff and do that, but then they're not happy to earn the right after that to, to win the game. You know, they're happy to put on those points and stuff, but then they just go out of the game. They lose the concentration. They do the fundamentals wrong defensively. They just lose track completely. And it's just it's not quite up to standard from what you'd expect. And I don't know how long Holbrook is going to have based on what we've seen so far. So it's going to be an interesting watch into the future weeks, that's for sure. Let's go on to some of our few topics before we finish off on the podcast. Early coach extensions. Um, So Brad Arthur recently started 0-2, and he was rewarded for that 0-2 start for this season with a brand-new contract extension. He was already signed until, 
uh, the end of next year, and they've signed him until the end of 2025 now. So I I don't know why teams need to do this like the Eels, but I guess the only thing that makes this look even better is the fact that the Broncos did it with Kevin Walters after they didn't ever make the eight last year and performed terribly. Yeah. So earlier in the season, we had Kevin Walters get a contract extension after it was meant to finish this year, get an extra two years, and he's going to go through to 2025 as well. So I don't know how this happens and why we just got on this trend, but all of a sudden this last sort of year or two, all these coaches just keep getting extended when they've got one to two years left on their deals. And it's not even coaches that like, you know, if the Storm do it with Craig Bellamy, you don't blink. But yeah, Brad Arthur's been there a long time. They're talking about making him the longest serving coach in Parramatta Eels history now because he's gone so well. I, I don't want to detract from Arthur because he went to a grand final and that's good. I do think he's a better coach than some people suggest. But at the same time, he's not somebody just to do that with. And I don't understand the upside. With Kevin Walters, it's it's an absolute shambles. Like I could not be more critical of doing it with Walters because surely, you know, everyone remembers them being top four a lot last year and then falling out of the eight. But the way they fell out of the eight was abysmal coaching. And you have to remember that before that, they've gotten the first ever wooden spoon not long ago. Like how do you put yourself in a corner where you're committing to a coach that really what showed 12 good weeks last year? in his coaching tenure of a few years and was involved with the club before that as well. Like, it just seems like madness, but we just seem to have this trend, Luke, where clubs just say, yeah, you want an extension, here you go. You're here already, why not give you an extra couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I can understand why you would extend Arthur in the preseason off making the grand final. Like, if he said, I want to be extended and they wanted to keep him, I don't understand why you would want to watch the start of the year before doing it. That's an odd, you know what I mean? Like, if in the off-season they decided we want to keep you here longer because we think you know, that clubs are going to come after you. I could understand the grand final result, you know, making a grand final influencing him to do that. I don't know why you would watch the first two weeks and think, you know what we need to do now is extend the coach. Um, but the, the, the Walters one, it's, it's happened for a while, is that it's, it's happening further and further into the future with these extensions a year or two out. But to me, for maybe the last five years, what boards have thought they'll do is to take pressure off the club by extending the coach in the preseason as a sign of faith, good faith to show that there's not going to be speculation all year. Um, you know, the coach is off. Oh, who's going to come in? They're going to sack him. Who's the new coach going to be? Oh, we'll extend him and that'll shut everyone up. And the bottom line is it doesn't do anything except make you look foolish when you have to sack him anyway, because at the end of the day, if your coach is signed for one year or 10 years, if your team keeps losing, the media will jump on it and the coach will be under pressure. Uh, rightly a lot of the time, but rightly or wrongly, that's how the game works. So it doesn't matter whether you extend them. They're going to be under pressure. And it doesn't matter whether you extended them for 20 years or one. If they lose all the time, you'll also sack them and pay them out. Every club does it. They they just do. So it it doesn't take any pressure off. It doesn't do anything. So what you ask is, all I ask is, why, who do you think is bidding for this guy? That's the question on whether you do it. So, all right. You've got Walters. You think you'll probably want him next year if your team goes okay. If we wait, is someone going to poach him? The answer is no. Don't extend him, <laughs> right? Like, is it, is it that simple? It's like players. Uh, is anyone else going to want him or is anyone else really going to poach him? If the answer is no, why are you giving an extension? Yeah. And look, there's, it's just <laughs> there's that and there's the fact that there's no upside to it, in my opinion, other than maybe sometimes you can make that argument, like you mentioned, that you can take the pressure off the club and stuff. But... but uh, 
I don't think it does. I just don't. I think if you lose games, like, do you really think now if Brisbane lose their next eight games, do you think that they will not be under pressure? They'll be under massive or it pressure. Won't be talked about because he's got an just put themselves in a financial yeah. hole as well. But yeah. look, I'll, I'll, I'll counter yeah. the whole. It takes pressure off the club, the players know what's happening in the future. You know, there's not going to be questions in the media about his tenure. Blah 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 blah. I'll counter that by saying, you know what? Sometimes it's good to have pressure. Sometimes you deserve to have pressure to perform. Because what's wrong with pressure to perform? You know, if you're not performing, shouldn't you have the pressure and the and the motivation that you need to perform because you need to earn that next contract? Like, and you know, this we criticize players for this. So I don't see why we don't criticize coaches for this. If a player's not playing well and we reward them with an extra two or three years, you know, the the talk is well, they didn't even earn that. Like, how did this guy earn this big contract? You know, you, you want you want that player to be under pressure because you want them to show this year that they deserve that next big contract that they want to sign. And inadvertently, the good players do earn it and you give it to them and you're happy to because they earned it. Why is it different for coaches? Why why is it worse for Walters to be known to have to perform this year after last year's debacle? Like, I would put the pressure on him because if you're a coach and you can't handle that pressure or you don't rise to the occasion, then you're not a coach that should be there for the long term. So, you know, I'll argue the opposite. What is wrong? with having some pressure to perform because inadvertently these these players and also the coaches, they need to perform and they need to be able to come to standard. Yeah, it's fair enough. I don't disagree with you. I, I, I've never understood a lot of these. The Knights did it with O'Brien um, after they finished seventh mid-season a year or two ago and they've barely won a game since and they put themselves in a hole where all it means is they're going to cost themselves hundreds of thousands of dollars more to sack him and he wasn't going anywhere. Yeah, you know, um... well, yeah, you have these clubs as well that just put themselves in a corner where they actually can't sign another coach even when they want to because they don't have any money left. Yeah. Like the Tigers were in that position, right? Well, I think I think that's what's happened at Newcastle. To be honest with you, I think the reason that Adam yeah. O'Brien wasn't sacked last year is not because they don't have the money; they're, they're absolutely loaded. The owners of the clubs, West Leagues Club, massive, massive pokey down in Newcastle, and very, very loaded. But they run the club and they run it with their own money as West. And I think once they sign the coach. They looked at last year. We were, say, let's say there was 10 weeks left in the season. They've looked at that and said, we've signed Adam O'Brien for another two and a half years. This season is gone. We are not going to be in the finals. It's not possible. And they basically decided that they were better off letting him play those 10 weeks and then letting him see how this goes at the start of this year because it wasn't costing them the finals last year and it would save them hundreds of thousands in the payout. I genuinely think that's what happened. And you know, that's their own fault for boxing themselves into the corner by extending him for several years uh, and ba- making it so they would have had to pay him out the better part of a million dollars to give him, a, you know, basically pay him three years worth of salary. Uh, for what reason? It's, it's an odd current trend that started to happen in the game with coaches, and I don't particularly agree with it, and uh, I don't see how it um, generates better performance a lot of the time either. Uh, next point, Teddy extends after talks of his rooster's exit seemed greatly exaggerated. Uh, there was Who'd have thought? There was so so much talk for all of seven days about how oh you know Teddy could walk and stuff and, and your your good friend from the Newcastle way, Andrew Johns, was very vocal on oh they have to choose between Suali'i and James Tedesco and you know I'd choose jo- Joseph Suali'i. There's, there was no way in the world, like, I cannot believe the media coverage that this got. There was no way in the world that the Roosters were going to tell James Tedesco to leave. 
Like he's the Australian captain. He's the club captain. He's a New South Wales captain. He's gone to multiple grand finals with them. He's won multiple grand finals for them. He is right up there with the Dallium's every year. Yeah, he's coming into 32 years of age, but that's fine. He doesn't look like he's digressing to be a reserve grader. Like it's just, and, and Sue Lee is young and he's several years away. Like to think that they have to choose between Sue Lee and James Tedesco because Teddy wants more than one year more on his contract. Like, I think that it, it, all this media groundswell happened and there was all these stories and things. And then all of a sudden, three days after these stories started hitting, it comes out from the roosters very quietly too, I might add. Not many media organisations really jumped on this. James Tedesco has extended for an extra year and now until the end of 2025. Like, that was always going to happen. And I was super surprised at the amount of media pundits that decided to jump out and start exaggerating Teddy's demise all of a sudden from the Roosters. So, you know, what was your take on, on all of this with uh, Teddy possibly having to leave the Roosters or being pushed out for, for Joe Suali? Uh, my first thought was, why are we having this discussion now? Because like, is it just is there just not enough to talk about? Like, we're not talking about next year, so why are we discussing it at all? Like, it's not not relevant. Uh, not surprised whatsoever they extended him. The bottom line is um, there will always be an example of a time this goes wrong. Like, there'll always be the Bulldogs who re-sign Sherwin and not Jonathan Thurston. Like, every now and then you get one where you did need to bite the bullet and make a tough call. Um, but it's the exception. The bottom line is uh, it's for every talented kid out there, very few of them will ever. In fact, I'd go far to say on my hands, I could count the amount of talented uh, you know, young players out there that will ever go on to be as good as James Tedesco because he's at least one of the best two or three fullbacks in the NRL era. And if you want to argue him higher, that's fine. Um, he is as you know, good in his position as anyone who's played it. And you don't give those players up. You just don't. It's You sometimes have to make tough calls on that next tier down. You've got a guy who's a very, very, very good player and you've got a kid who's, you know, you know, you think he's going to make it. Sometimes you've got to make that, pull that trigger. But you, you, if every year you can get James Tedesco playing, you take James Tedesco playing. And that's just the bottom line of it. Um, Billy Slater was very good at the end. And the Roosters chose, chose him over Latrell. As well. Like the Roosters have already chosen yep. Teddy over Latrell. Latrell was put in the centres, had a very good career in the centres, much longer than Joseph Suali'i. And all, and they had to choose between them and they said, see you later, Latrell. And as as much as I like Joseph Suali'i, he is no Latrell Mitchell to me either. You know, so to think He's also that, the third best fullback at the club. Well, yeah, that's a, um. that's a jo- it's a jo- running joke and it's a really good and accurate one. <laughs> like yeah. Joey Mardu is, is far better. So what, what year is Tedesco now out of contract? Is it the end of 2025? Yeah, so he's got next right? season and the season after. Could, well, could I make the point that if at the end of that, let's just say that he retired at the end of that year, which is possible. Yep. Um, he might not, but let's say he retired and um, or he was struggling. Like he just got to the end, not struggling, you know, he got to the he, end of the year. He would be like, 33 oh, in that yeah. season. So yeah, could happen. Yeah, let's say he got to the end of that year and he went, I don't know if he's quite what he was before. Uh, I will just make the point that for all this, oh, you've lost Salih, he's, he's left because he didn't get the fullback spot. Joey Manu will only be 28 mm. at that time. <laughs> he could have three years, four years or five years of moving Joseph Manu there. Um, that sounds like a fairly good backup. I wouldn't be too stressed. I don't think they're doing all right. No. Um, 
you know, the Knights spent the off-season trying to barter forwards to get Lachlan Miller from South Reserve <laughs> if you have, if you If Joseph Manu is your backup plan, I'd just chill. It's still a little. It's gone. Okay. Uh, I, I just, yeah, and it goes back to what we were saying when we were reviewing the rounds games and we were talking about Joseph, where he he really hasn't earned the right yet, and that's not that's not really on him. It's on the media anointing him and and everything and creating these stories. But like he hasn't earned the right to say. It's a really good point that it is a really good point. Is that everything he said right? And something I try and watch is that I find myself sometimes resenting players for how much coverage they've got, and it's actually not their fault. Um, mm. Ponga was one that's got like that. Not so much with I just I get funny about him because I'm a Knights fan and he doesn't put in. But other other fans of other clubs got started to get irritated by how much he became the golden child. Um, you know when he sort of the Knights were coming twelfth and he was just making flashy plays and surely he's going a bit that way. Where I started to get my back up a bit and think just shut up. Like he's a good player, but he's not that good. Just what are you talking about? Best fullback in the, you know, the world and all this stuff. But it is important to remember it's not their, it isn't their fault, right? Like they, they don't yeah. write these stories. And it's, um, I try to remember that every now and again and go, okay, he's a great young player and he could be an outstanding player. And I shouldn't resent him because every, because Buzz Rothfield and co want to write about him every day. It's <laughs> technically not his fault. You know, you never see him interviewed out there saying I'm the best fullback in the Roosters club or anything. So I know his management do a little, but like you, you don't see that. So it, it is important because you're right. It, it's it's often not driven by these guys. There's just got to be something to write about and they sort of become, it feeds itself where suddenly they're all anyone's talking about is the next big thing. Well, the management thing's funny too to bring up because it's that's what hap- what's happened with Teddy as well. Some of the headlines were uh, Tedesco's, Tedesco is at loggerheads with the Roosters over over contract extensions, and that they're actually and that and the and then the blurb under the headline is that Tedesco and the Roosters are fighting because he wants a contract extension, the Roosters won't give it. Whereas when you read the actual story, it's basically Tedesco's management have been pestering the Roosters to sign a contract extension, and the Roosters have balked at it because they thought it was too early to do it. I think that it's very likely that Tedesco isn't even hardly involved in any of it. You know, it says it there; it's his management, and this is what player managers do. They want to get clients signed as long as possible and get things signed off so they can get paid. It's what happens. It's also kind of a good thing that he asked for one. To be honest, everyone's acting like, oh, when they were saying it was greedy or whatever else, to me, at the end of the day, what he could have done is got to the end of that deal and tried to cash, you know, a massive deal from the Tigers or something because he'd get one. Um, And he hasn't. He's tried to extend instead. And usually that you do extend for a little when you extend with your current club for a year you don't usually get full market value like if he went on the open market i actually think it's a good thing that he wants to commit he's to East for another year and, and, yeah because yeah, the salary yeah. cap's gone up and he's he's on 1.1 yeah, yeah I, I don't think it's greedy or trying to screw the roosters i think the opposite locking them away early helps ease and it helps him like and, and he's showing he's committed to the team because if, if he was worried about dollars you would back yourself to play well for the next this season, and when you're off for 25 early next year, you would the, the Tigers would offer him well one 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 point two million dollars easy. He could go walk out from probably more to be honest. Oh, he'll get one point five uh, yeah. under the new cap yeah. era. Uh, the next big contract yeah, will be one point five yeah. from one point six. But yeah. it's that's the thing. It's it, it's a pay cut, and the other thing too is that you need to look at it a different way. In my opinion, where it's not greedy at all. Like you've got two budding fullbacks here, right? One's your current fullback, one wants the fullback job. And the one on the right that's your fullback is saying, I will commit to you till three years in the future. I'd commit to you for seven years if you wanted to sign it. Whereas the other one says, actually, I want to clause every single year 
that I can get up and leave if I get a better offer or I decide I want to go somewhere else. Yeah. Like, you know, to me, I, I applaud Tedesco for committing himself to the Roosters and wanting to be a Rooster for life. And, you know, I don't understand why that's a bad thing when, you know, Joseph Suali, for as good as he might be, won't actually commit long-term to it at all. He wants to get out clause that he can activate before May each year. Um, where he has to inform the Roosters each year that he's actually going to stay. You know, like, and, and the Roosters put that in his contract because he wanted it. So to me, Tedesco's just committed to the Roosters, and that's what you want. You want someone committed to the club, and you know, I, I think it's good that he's extended, and I think that it's good that it got put to bed very quickly. And it is a very Roosters thing to do. Like, people talk about them being well-managed. That's good management of a club. You know, you don't let something fester. You don't let it get into the playing group. You don't let it... Um, get exploited in the media for several months. You know, it came out and within three days, there was a media release saying Tedesco has signed for 2025 now. You know, it's done. It's all over. Um, Look, we've got to get on to my spray of the week because we've got to get to your legend rewind that you're going to love and I'm going to really give you the reins to. Barnsley spray of the week, 20-team expansion. Oh, my God. (laughs) Where to start? Well... The ARL Commission is planning to expand the NRL to a 20-team competition. And it's reportedly the biggest shake-up that's going to happen since the Super League War in the 90s. So basically, Vlandis and everyone at the top of the NRL has come out and said, we are keen to look at a 20-team competition. Um, There is a few different teams that are being discussed. Obviously, we all expected Luke, an 18th team to come in. That's meant to come in by 2025, and then all of a sudden they think they can bring in 20 20 teams by 2025. Uh, The ones that they're looking at are Pacifica franchise, uh, and that's going to be the 18th team apparently if they get it through. Uh, But other ones that they're looking at that are in the mix, North Sydney, a second New Zealand team, Papua New Guinea, Perth, Brisbane's Firehawks or Jets, uh, and Vlandy says never say never about Adelaide. It is a crazy story that I did not see coming. Uh, Abdo and Volandis have really bitten off more than what they can chew with this one. I think it's really hard for them to get an 18th team in. We've already seen the Dolphins kind of get rushed in with minimal support. And even though they've won the first couple of games, we're still a long way from them being a a real, you know, rusted on successful franchise in the NRL. Um, I think that it's, quite naive and ignorant, to be honest, to think that we can go up to 20 teams that quickly when as few as two years ago, the NRL themselves were saying 18 teams is the max and that's pushing it. Like 20 teams to me is crazy, but the craziest thing, Luke, that's really got me on my soapbox, the whole Pacifica team idea. Now, I understand if you want to have pathways in the Pacific region, if you want, you know, Tonga, Samoa, all these other island nations involved in the NRL, they can be with pathway programs. They can be with New South Wales Cup, a proper reserve guard and different things. But to think that you can throw one in the NRL, like the first thing obviously is, you know, well, if you're going to make like a Tongan team uh, or a Pacific team that plays in Samoa, Tonga, Papua New Guinea, and they alternate games between there, no players are going to go and live there and play there. You're going to end up with a team that's not quite successful enough to be an NRL level at all. And it's just going to be something that doesn't work. But the NRL's bright idea with this is, no, actually, we're going to base this team full-time in Cairns. So, cool. They're going to be down the road from the Cowboys. Um, interesting concept, but they're not going to be from that area. They're going to represent Samoa, Tonga, and Papua New Guinea. And those island nations are going to get behind this team that is significantly far away. But the bridge to that is that we're going to play games over in those island nations. Cool. 
tell you what you could have done. You could have just had 18 teams and sorted every one of those 18 teams to play a game in each one of those countries during the year. How hard is that to do? Because they're going to be just as oh, vocal and supportive of all these other teams as what well. they are going to be one planted in Cairns that's labelled Pacifica. Like, to me, it is just ridiculous. Like I cannot get behind it at all. But then you dig it out even more, Luke, and the blood boils. Brisbane's Firehawks or Jets, maybe we'll get them in. <laughs> Look, we've just thrown in Redcliffe down the road with the Dolphins, but you can't call them Redcliffe because you didn't want there to be a rival with Brisbane or associated with them geographically. And you want to throw in another Brisbane team there for the Firehawks or Jets. But you've got to be absolutely kidding. And on top of all of this, the most sense has always been Perth to me. And it's like they're <laughs> on the back burner. I just... Uh, I cannot believe that we've gone to this 20-team concept so quickly or that the NRL thinks that these different iterations are going to be super successful. So what really jumped out at me is I was reading that article as well and, and taking back a bit, uh, and I got into the article and it suggested that the federal government was going to provide all of this funding or was really urging the Pacifica concept on the basis that they were going to use this to fight the influence of China in the Pacific Islands. And I must say, I just didn't expect to read that. Like, the idea was that... <laughs> it's like a 1940s was, type of thing, you know, fight the Reds I and know, all this stuff. The idea that, like, this, this, uh, China is increasing its influence in the region and we're going to fight back through rugby league, which I am all for fighting back with rugby league against anything. Um, rugby league is the answer to fighting back. But but that we were going the idea that we are going to set up a rugby league team in the Pacific specifically to, to combat the Chinese just was not what I expected to read. Um, Quite aside from that, uh, obviously, agree with a fair bit of what you're going to say. I mean, uh, if one day they think that they have the infrastructure and the players to base a team in the Pacific and it would work with television and the travel time and all the rest of it, then by all means, like, no, no problem with it. But um, we're probably not there yet. And I don't really understand why they would play in Cairns. Uh, that, that just, I, I don't get what's being achieved there, it's obviously not going to be... You may as well call it the Cairns Sharks. Well, and then, yeah. You know, have a, you know, I don't understand No, it. it's not it, going to be... Even as a concept. You can't have a... You know, without getting too deep into it, I mean, you can't have a racialised roster. Like, if they're not... If they're obviously a Pacifica team if they're playing out of Tonga or PNG or anything, sure. But once they play out of Cairns, you... you they're inevitably they can't just sign Pacific Island players. <laughs> like you know, that's you can't set a team up and say you can only recruit people with this heritage, right? Like that's just weird and completely out of kilter. So they're gonna be a team playing out of cans called Pacifica, full of a mix of players of heritage from there and also not from there. So once you're a partially a team partially made up of Australians, Kiwis, and Pacific Island players playing out of cans you're not a Pacific team, right? Like at that point. Sounds like an NRL team. (laughs) It could be the Parramatta Eagles. Yeah, yeah. So like, you know, obviously, you know, if they're based in the Pacifica, then yeah, of course you can have Australian players and Kiwi players and whatever else. But but once they're based out of Cairns, if they're not all Pacifica players, then what's the the link? Anyway, um, that obviously makes no sense. The first thing I also thought when I read that article before I got to the intriguing concept of this fighting the Chinese was um, just the 20 teams thing. All I thought to myself was, oh, have we tried this before and sort of parked back to when we did exactly this in the mid nineties and every, you know, the Broncos and the Raiders and a couple of those teams and Manly flogged the living hell out of everyone because 
there wasn't enough players and Balmain and everyone were getting beat by 50 every week. And we had this big idea that we had to rationalize the comp because it was too weak. And we had, yeah, we had, that's right. We had a super league. We had a war <laughs> fall, fall over it because the comp was terrible and we needed a, a super league, so to speak, where good teams would play every week. <laughs> and uh, we came out of that with 20 teams again in 1998. And from there, we whittled it down slowly, uh, well down on that because it wasn't working and we merged teams together and everyone said, geez, there's too many teams in Sydney, but we can't really get rid of any more because it's the lifeblood of the game and the fans are all there. So we're just going to make do with leaving them there and having a smaller comp. So we have already tried this multiple times. It didn't work then. And at the risk of just, I know it, it must get very boring and it's not sexy and everything else, but if you want to put expand the game into new regions, what you have to do is to follow the AFL model a little bit and give them an established team and move them out. You have to get a team in Sydney that has an established group of fans, money behind it already, and players, and you have to then move them out of a very crowded market and put them into a new one. I don't know. Sydney Bears go to Perth. Yeah, ex- exactly. Surely. Exactly. And if you wanted, if you wanted to have you know, if you then want to have a team in Adelaide or, or anywhere else, then you need to put a huge financial carrot to get one of the crowded Sydney sides to go so that they keep their fans, they go back and play two games a year in Sydney and they, they play at Adelaide, whatever it is. And I don't need a debate with you over whether we actually need to do that or not. But if you want to put new markets in, if that's your end game, that's how you do it effectively. And even really the Dolphins, at the end of the day, the reason that has been successful so far in terms of fans and people going is because they're not a new side. They, they, I know they won't call themselves Redcliffe and they've tried to distinguish, but Redcliffe fans are going. We all know that. So that, that, that they have come with an established base of fans and it gives you that boost and a head start to get on with. And it's just common sense. I think really at the end of the day is we're not having another team in Brisbane. If there comes a day where uh, airline travel and times and everything else allows us to have a Pacific team in the Pacific and they've got the infrastructure to play, that would be so cool. And, and that's great, but we're not, we're not anywhere near that at the moment. And I hope that I live to see it. That'd be great, but it's not going to be in the next 10 years. Um, let's baby steps with the New South Wales cup team that Fiji have got going and all that kind of stuff, like move them up. Like that's, that's the answer there. And just put the North Sydney bears into Perth problem solved. If later on you want to expand in new markets, there is nine teams in Sydney, put one of it, get one of them to go to Adelaide by offering them a heap of money and problem solved. But that's, that's the ironic yeah. thing too, right? Like even just the last year or two, there's been discussions about we need to get rid of teams. And like internally at the NRL too, like you, I think some people might forget that a few years ago, the Sharks were threatened by the NRL that they'll, they'll lose, they'll get moved. Mm. Like before they got that big development deal and they had a money injection, they were in dire straits. They also took over the Titans and the Knights, like the, the, the comps are weak. Yeah. Yeah. And they, and yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. They, they took over those clubs and the Sharks were threatened. The, the Sharks actually had somebody put in there um, from that was an ex-Broncos CEO to manage the Cronulla Sharks who was employed yeah. by the NRL because they were going so badly. So, And the NRL were making these threats because of the financial viability, but also because it's been said forever and a day that, well, there's too many clubs in specific areas. And so how do we go from wanting to, you know, make the competition smaller to actually adding more teams. And then you've got the whole Queensland thing where we've got this problem in Sydney, apparently, where there's too many teams in Sydney, but you want to add 
one team in the Dolphins, it's very close to these other couple of teams, but then you want to throw another one right in the middle of that mix as well. Yeah. Like it's just, it's counter to everything that's happened for the last few years on top of all the other problems. But probably the biggest spray that I'm going to give this whole thing is that if you want to genuinely help the, the Pacific region or you want to fight China and you think this is the way to do it or whatever the government and the NRL think that they need to do out there, then what you need to do is play games out there from the NRL teams every year, which you can do and you can negotiate government funding for, create better pathway systems where you can work towards having all of these teams having New South Wales Cup teams where they are Tonga or Samoa and they play maybe six games a year on their home turf and start to build with that. But if anyone with any type of strategic thinking or commercial sense were to do this, they would come out and say, here's a 20-year plan. And in 20 years, we might be able to say, here's an NRL club based in Samoa or in Tonga or wherever else. But that's what you're talking about. And, you know, if that doesn't happen, you don't need an NRL club, Luke, to be able to support the Pacific Nations and give them stuff to cheer for and give them rugby league. You could do it without this stuff. It's, a, it's just I don't understand the leaps that we're taking. Well, a, a very I, I hate to uh, be Captain Obvious here, but for a start, they've got some uh, – we ha- now have some absolutely fantastic Pacific Island representative sides, the national sides. You know, we've had the last Tonga, – Tonga's performance at the World Cup before last was incredible, and then we've had Samoa do the same in this one. Is there any danger of sort of scheduling regular internationals there with their national team? Because they always play in New Zealand and Australia in rep round and stuff. Is there any danger of maybe like as a, if you want to bring football as a start, maybe actually respecting the international game properly and actually having the international games that those countries play go there? Uh, because that would be a start. We haven't done that enough. <laughs> If I paid like the 1895 postage, because Australia Post is exceptionally expensive these days, and sent a dictionary to the NRL and, and underlined the word irony, do you think they'd understand where I'm coming from? Like, mm. <laughs> we, we, we want to support the Pacific so much in all these island nations that we're going to look at giving them an NRL team and stuff and everything, but we're not going to have internationals. You know, it's just it's too hard. It's, it's too much work. It's, it's too much investment. We don't want to have you know, Samoa getting to play all the time as a national team or put the comp on hold to do this or this and that. Bloody hell. Like, honestly, like, it's just, it's double talk so much from the NRL these days and it just kills me. If it, The other, it's a great point, Luke Max. If you want to do all this stuff, then put a slate in every year. Like, they actually got rid of that, didn't they? Like, the, the middle of the season. Yeah, that we had a rep break. Yeah, yeah, the rep weekend's gone. Like that's how much they cared about Samoa and Tonga and Fiji and all these island nations. They got rid of the rep weekend. <laughs> like, seriously, it is just a debacle. And I could go on and on, but we need to finish on something positive. It shouldn't go to 20 teams. I think that's obvious. And if it's going to go to 18 teams, which it has to, it needs to be Perth. End of. There is no other discussion. Some of the other ideas are absolutely ludicrous and the NRL should all lose their jobs and get fans put in place because they do a better job at the moment. Legend Rewind. Denny Badiris, Knights legend. Uh, he's a one-club man, Luke, as you would all know, and he has a lot of accolades, uh, a very good career. Delhi M Hooker of the Year, 2002, 2004, 2005. Rep Player of the Year, 2002. Delhi M Award winner in 2004. RLPA Player of the Year in 2004. Brad Fittler Medal in 2009. Uh, and in the obviously the Rugby League Hall of Fame. Um, he is... By far one of the most unheralded great hookers 
of any generation to me, like going throughout history. Uh, people talk about Cameron Smith as a benchmark. The Walters uh, talk was obviously very prevalent um, in the early 2000s before Cameron Smith made his mark as well. There's some other guys from the 80s like Benny Elias that are well-loved and uh, also many other hookers before that in the old old era of the game. But you don't hear Danny Badira spoken about that often. And he is somebody who I think really challenged Cameron Smith in a lot of ways for that top hooking spot um, that the game has seen. Now, I'm not going to put him above Cameron Smith, although you might try and argue this and I'll, I'll leave that to you. <laughs> but, you know, he played 25 appearances for Australia. He captained Australia, uh, 21 appearances for New South Wales, one club man with Newcastle, career spanning 257 first grade games for the Knights. Played in Leeds 2009 through to 2011 as well with 83 appearances there. Uh, he is just, he was such a stellar player, Luke, and such a fantastic clubman for your Newcastle Knights. Oh, yeah, he's one of the greats of all time. He, he's a, no doubt a Hall of Fame level player. Um, he was probably, I, I think, he was the best hooker in the world for most of the time he played. Um, Cameron, there's overlap with Cameron Smith, but him and Cameron, Cameron Smith's career has gone on to be better, but most of that happened after. Danny, Danny retired. When, when they were both going around, they had a very strong rivalry as the two best players um, sort of playing the game at, at the same time. And the thing with what people forget a little bit is Badera still managed to play, you know, 24 tests. But what happened was at the end of that, because he played at the Knights till the end of 2008, and he came back after years out and, and played right at the end. But basically he was the captain in 05 or he captained the game. But when he goes to 2000 and, um, 2006, he stood down from going on that tour because uh, of the birth of one of his kids. So what ended up happening is he was the incumbent and Smith never took that spot. Like when they were, they were both playing and Smith had been, Smith was three years into his career playing for Queensland um, and they were both playing Origin and Baderas was being picked for uh, over him for Australia for, for three seasons there. And at the end of 06, Baderas makes himself unavailable. Smith then gets the job, plays well, and they never pick Baderas again in the next two seasons before he goes to England. So it's one of those situations where they were both very level players and, and Baderas probably held off Smith with incumbency and Smith only really held him off through incumbency, if that makes sense. It's never that Baderas was actually turfed from the team, from the test side. They were just both very good. And once Smith played that, you know what it's like with Australian teams, they just pick you again. Um, and they were both very good. But but really, he, he, he's outside of Smith. No one, there's very few fuckers that have played 24 tests for Australia. He was the captain of origin for a long time, even when he wasn't the Newcastle captain. And it's difficult to describe why he was so good to people. Because um, it, it, it wasn't, if you didn't see him, it wasn't this obvious. He didn't have that Robbie Farris style sparky game where it lends itself to highlights. What he was, was he brought his forwards onto the ball incredibly well. Uh, he was very clever out of dummy half. I, I remember a stat one year where uh, Craig Wing was always on the bench for New South Wales. And there was always these weirdos who'd say that Wing was better than Baderas. And he used to drive me insane. Um, and there was a stat one year where, where Craig Wing had had an average of, oh, sorry, Craig Wing had run for the season 80 times from dummy half. And Baderas had run 18. And Baderas had more line breaks. And, and I raised that because I, to, I suppose, show that he wasn't this like energizer bunny cook sort of hooker, but he made it count. He sort of, he went out a lot more than Smith did, but a lot less than your sort of Damien Cook styles and Craig Wing style players. But he used to really know when the markers weren't there and he would get out uh, and go. 
And he was a real perfect foil for Andrew Johns. He had this real, they used to have basically a rule that when Danny Baderas runs the ball, the whole side just pushes up and pushes in gaps and he'll find you. And, and the other big thing for him, and it's one reason I was so fond of these night sides, is that him and Johns were the same in this way, is I think they're the two best or two of the best I've ever seen defensively in their positions to go with being two of the great players overall in their positions is he was an absolute hitman. Um, there was an origin game everyone talks about where they, he basically flew off the kickoff and just absolutely flew 40 metres in a straight line and knocked himself off his feet to knock Shane Webke off his feet. Um, and, and a lot of guys played in that game said it just set the tone for this whole series to see their hooker. I remember just, that. Just, yeah, just come out like off the kickoff and run in the straight line at a prop as hard as he could and just chest tackling where both of them, like he bounced off, but so did Webke. They both <laughs> hit the deck and he was that kind of guy. He was that guy. And there's not a lot of hookers like that now where he would absolutely get up and jam you when you were when you were under the pump is that that sort of player where he put big shots on every week when he needed to do it and and was oh, I, I, it's, I couldn't wrap him anymore he was so incredibly tough and he had that that bit of skill and class to go with it and Cameron Smith undoubtedly has had a better career so there's no argument about that anymore but in the time they were both playing the game they had a very intense rivalry because there was a genuine question and a genuine debate over who was better at that time. Smith's achievements afterwards, sure, that that's he's played for another bloody you know, 12 years or whatever it is, and you can't take that away from him, maybe a bit longer. Um, but when they were both playing, it was an open-ended question where you could genuinely have some people saying Baderish was better and some people saying Smith. And that, that's, I suppose, just to, if people, if anyone younger is listening, that's the level of player he was at at that time. Yeah, it's he was such a good player, and I, I just have to just say everything that you said. I would say myself, um, but probably one of the biggest things, like if I were to just say it really succinctly on what sort of player he was, to me he was a complete player that was super reliable, and that always sounds really boring. Like, and it sort of sounds like one of those workhorse forwards that just you know made a lot of tackles and did a lot of the dirty work, but like it, it wasn't it at all. It really discounts how good he was he could do everything uh, and I think that a lot of the time with his career his football IQ and his attacking prowess got overshadowed because he was such a good defender and because he was such a good clubman that worked so well as second fiddle really to like Andrew Johns being the big superstar and that kind of overshadowed the fact that he was actually quite a good attacking player and could do everything himself well too um, so I always remember that from him and I always thought that he got a little bit short change on the attacking end and definitely the IQ end. Like it's one of those things where we can go back to earlier in the podcast when we were talking about uh, just the, the basic skills that aren't learnt sometimes in today's mm. game coming through and some of that's with no reserve grade and, and kids starting when they're 17 or 18 at NRL level and stuff. But, well, you know, all those basic skills, like if you were to teach a hooker how to play the game perfectly, to me you'd mould Denny Badiris's game into them. Like, because technically he could do everything so well. He's passing, his IQ. You mentioned how he, he, he'd get the ball onto his forwards rolling forward and how everyone would push up and he'd find people in gaps. And then defensively as well, like people talk about um, the te- the technical defensive work of someone like uh, the Axe Gilmeister and some of these guys defensively. Technically, he was fantastic as well as being able to hit very yeah. hard. Um, so to me, he was just a prototype hooker. Uh, obviously, you know, yeah. I'm not going to put him above Cameron Smith. And Cameron Smith did some other things that, that hookers don't normally do. Um, but if you're looking at a prototype hooker, you would build Denny Badiris for me. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's about right. It's um, well, another really big thing I always like reminding people about Bedsy is that the year he won the Dally M as the best player in the entire competition was actually the year that Andrew Johns missed every round, uh, sorry, every round after round three, did his ACL and missed all season. And the reason I raise that is, yes, on a very technical level, it is easier to poll points without someone that good stealing some. But on a completely different level, if anyone remembers what it was like back then, the Knights had like a 20% win rate without Joey to actually be crowned the best player in the competition the year that you don't have the best player, in my opinion, of all time, but certainly, you know, he's, he's an immortal. Uh, you don't have an immortal in your side. Just shows that character and things with, that I guess were part of how good he was because he's not a guy who, oh, we don't have help and we're not as good this year and he got worse. He actually got better and he actually did more and he did things that year that I hadn't seen him do before. There was strings to his bow that when he was playing with Joey, there was times where, understandably, you just gave it to Joey a lot some weeks and in some attacking situations, it was like, okay, it's either on for me. And if it's not, I hit, hit Joey. But that year he was like, okay, it's not that on for me, but I have to get out and do something because my team, I'm the, I'm the guy. And, and that's a really big mark for me. Guys that actually step up and do better when they're missing the help is a big, big thing. Guys that do well in bad sides or step up when their team's in trouble. And you, you can't put a value on that because it's that attitude that let him be so good in origin and for Australia and all those other things, you know, when, when the heat was on, he was like, I, I want to do this and I'm going to find a way to step it up. But then also having the smarts that when he had the great guys around him, he didn't hog the ball. Um, there's guys like Farrah and Hodgson and those guys who the knock on them sometimes is they do too much almost, you know what I mean? Like they sort of want to do it all and he could do it all, but was smart enough to know when he needed to defer to his halves, but when the team needed him or those guys were missing, he was able to step it up and do that extra stuff, which is really big for me because so many guys don't, right? Like you're in a great team. They're not mm. in a great team all of a sudden and you go, why aren't they doing anything? Or why are they struggling? The tournaments as well, yeah. the leadership qualities that he has. And that's why he got to lead Australia and New South Wales as well as club. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but a lot of that's down to leadership and Absolutely. his football yeah. IQ and the sort of leadership that he had because like he said, there were times where he had to step up and lead that team and he did it in pretty extenuating circumstances. So Danny Badir, it's a fantastic career. Uh, I won't say forgotten because I don't think he's forgotten, but I think that the level of hooker that he was is, is often overlooked. Uh, one of the best that I've seen of all time. I'd probably put him second to, to uh, Cameron Smith. And look, great way to finish up the podcast, Luke. Thanks so much for jumping on. It's always a pleasure to talk footy with you and I always try and throw some nights talk in there for you just to get you ramped up and motivated. I appreciate that, mate. I'll need it. Um, heading off tomorrow to watch the Knights play the Dolphins with 12 players out. So the good mood and the good times aren't <laughs> going to last. <laughs> well, good luck, Luke. And thanks for jumping on. You can hear Luke on the Rugby League Cemetery podcast and find that one everywhere. And also find this podcast everywhere, including iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon. You can uh, follow us on Twitter as well, NRL underscore SC underscore All Stars. And remember, we do have these podcasts, Talk and Footy, every week that hit on a Thursday, but we've also got the Supercoach podcast that we record on Tuesdays and it hits on Wednesday afternoon. So if you like your Supercoach or you like your rugby league, share it around, subscribe, follow, make sure you let everybody know because it's great. All the new listeners we're getting on board is fantastic. But We'll have our Supercoach episode on Tuesday night. Until then, enjoy round three of the NRL. It's going to be an absolute cracker. Can't wait to talk all about it again next week. Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star. Get the show on, get paid.